Yes, I'm at home, so no one is preparing lunch behind me, making lots of noises. Apologies to our listeners if you were distracted by that last week. Honestly, Stand it's up. kind of appropriate. It's kind of it's like restaurant ambiance, uh, but I just I don't know ADD or something. I it was distracting <laughs> to me. That's all that matters to me. That's all that matters in general, Sam. Is whatever. Yeah, exactly. To you. I'm glad you figured that out. Oh, I knew that already. Don't worry. Good. All right, so Alicia, welcome. We're so glad to have you here. You wrote so many Thank great stories this week. We just had to keep you on the podcast. We were, you were so prolific this week. We had to bring you on. That'll teach you. <laughs> this is your no. punishment. <laughs> Noted. <laughs> it, it was an interesting week because it seemed like day-to-day -day news was slow. So it was a good opportunity to get some of these, you know, these features out of the way and then subway happened and subway happened wasn't yeah, slow it anymore. <laughs> subway happened is the perfect way to put it i mean we love this news. has been a long journey <laughs> we love news well People and that in. was interesting it was one of the most prolonged sales processes i've ever seen in the 12 years i've been covering this industry and our our colleague ron has kept a firm pulse on this and he he echoed that sentiment i think these rumors started in january and there's been a lot of rumors swirling for a yeah. long time. So the day is here. I, I'm really happy for him. <laughs> <laughs> we'll find out if we're glad. happy for Subway. I'm, right. I'm glad it happened this week because Ron was on vacation last week. Um, and so I covered Trevor Haynes leaving the company. And I remember thinking, this feels like we're building up to something. And I hope yeah. it happens after Ron is back. <laughs> So yay, yay us, yay Ron. <laughs> yay Ron. You know, did Subway discuss who they're going to have as a successor to Trevor? Yeah, they named a successor last week when they announced his his leaving. They're Canadian guy, isn't it? Do you think he has a long history with the like? Do you think he's going to have a long future with the brand now that they've been uh, purchased? Well, he does have a long history with the brand, and the timing of this news makes me think that they made the appointment with the full knowledge of what was coming this week. Um, well, I am certain but, that this was very carefully planned. Well, and also remember, um, Subway also has a CEO, John Chidsey. So Trevor was, what, president of North America, North America. I think was his title. Mm -hmm. um, anyway, which is mostly to say I, I would have been more interested if there was a transition at the CEO position. And who knows, maybe yet there will be. Um, John, of course, has extensive experience previously being with Burger King and um, and would continue to be a great leader under the Rourke umbrella as well. But yeah, I mean, tip tends to be that with a private equity uh, acquiring a brand, um, taking a stake in a brand, often they want their own leaders in place. So who knows, maybe there'll be more transition to come. I mean, we don't actually know the amount, but 9.6 billion is what was floated by the Wall Street Journal, which is insane. So let's actually get into talking about the main story of Subway, which is that there's about to be purchased by Rourke Capital Group, who owns Jimmy John's, which I find is a very strange mix here. Um, I don't know how well we thought these two would go um, or if they're well, going to. Well, go let's ahead. just, let's like set the stage because Rourke doesn't <laughs> just own Jimmy John's, right? So no. Rourke uh -huh. owns Inspire and which owns Jimmy John's as well as Duncan and Sonic and Arby's and Buffalo Wild Wings. Rourke also owns Focus, which also has McAllister's. So there's, you know, not just uh, one other sandwich brand in their portfolio. And Schlotzky's. Um, and Schlotzky's, yeah, thank you. That's right. So, so there are now many sandwich brands under Rourke itself, but they're all in the different divisions. That still, I think, 
sort of a conflict of interest, but, um, but, you know, I'm also not smart enough to figure out how, when you have private equity and the restaurant groups over here and, I, I don't know how that model works, but uh, Alicia, you're smarter than me, so maybe you would understand a little bit better about how all that works. No, I just I just fake it better than you do. Let's be clear. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that's the I think that's the biggest question um, here right now at this moment is, you know, if you get past the the initial headline, which is it, let's say it is around nine point six billion. There's no reason to believe it's it's not. Um, you know, that is one of the biggest deals in the industry's history. And like, you know, just for context, the, the only other big deal I can think of this year, and I'm sure I'm missing some, is, uh, you know, when Darden um, acquired Roots Chris in May, that price tag was $750 million, $15 million. So that's quite a discrepancy. But Rourke obviously has deep pockets. They, you know, I think they paid just over $11 billion for Duncan, which was a little bit more. Um, than, you know, what we're assuming here. Um, and then, you know, just for added context, um, I can't, I can only think of maybe one other acquisition that was this big, but then the question becomes, where does it fit in that, you know, that work portfolio, which is huge. Um, is it going to be put under one of its, you know, two big umbrellas in focus or inspire, or it could be autonomous too. Um, I don't have a crystal ball. I don't know. I think it would be weird in either of those two. Um, but I also know that Subway is, you know, they've been, they've been going through some major turnaround efforts these under Chidsey um, since about 2019. Out of necessity, they've closed thousands of units. They've got Leapfrog by McDonald's, you know, as the biggest restaurant chain. They've been going through it. And they've made a, a, a tremendous amount of effort, uh, you know, as part of this turnaround effort, bringing, you know, Serena and Steph Curry on to market them, putting meat slicers in, you know, just trying everything, throwing everything at the wall. Mm -hmm. Autonomously, I think it would be better to keep that momentum going than it would maybe. But those two divisions have more infrastructure right? They have more resources. So that's another narrative that we have been covering a lot of late. A lot of companies are merging together, cobbling their resources together for scale, for, you know, economies of scale, any which way you choose it. And that could also put some more wind in, in Subway's turnaround sales if they, if they glommed onto one of those two divisions and, and leveraged the scale that already exists versus, you know, functioning autonomously under, you know, the bigger work umbrella. That's, it, a, that's a million dollar question. It, uh, it, I was going to say, it seems to me that work seems to keep their companies very separate and siloed. Um, until we started talking about work earlier this week, I can't remember the last time I even thought about the fact that Inspire and Focus are related in some way. You know, those Cousins. are two very distinct restaurant brand or restaurant companies in my mind. Um, and I was like, oh yeah, they are both. They do both have that work connection. Um, I think work considers themselves an investor rather than an owner. I'm putting quotes around those words as I speak um, in these brands, um, which makes me inclined to think that they'll just continue to operate Subway as its own independent company. But we also, especially when Subway introduced these meat slicers a few weeks ago, um, we started talking a lot about how consumers really saw that as a move for Subway to like catch up, quote unquote, to these smaller brands. And I say, you know, catch up kind of facetiously because Subway is the leading sandwich chain in every sense. Um, 
but consumers don't see it that way. And so there could also be an opportunity here for some way to learn from some of these smaller brands that work is also invested in. And like Alicia said, to lean on some of the infrastructure and some of the knowledge that those younger emerging brands have. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, because um, one thing I'll note is I think it's obvious that Subway is not going to get stuck under the Inspire portfolio, A, because of Jimmy John's, but B, because Inspire has made its own acquisitions, right? Uh, when Inspire acquired Sonic and Duncan and Jimmy John's, it was Inspire acquired them, not Rourke, right? So so that's a clue to us that with Rourke buying Subway, the intention is not for it to be under um, Inspire. And yes, to your point, Leanne, it, Rourke is an investor. It's just the size of the stake, you know, is is what makes it an owner, which is they have a majority stake in Inspire. I think it's a majority stake in Focus, which gives them a majority. I mean, makes them the owner, yes. But if we want to split hairs here in terms of the words we're using. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, to both Leanne and Alicia's point, um, I think this could be a very good thing for Subway that even if they are their own entity under Rourke, that they will have so many leaders and expertise and resources to draw from to really support the brand. However, you know, to play devil's advocate a little bit, it will be interesting to see um, what can be done to Subway to do the private equity thing, which is to extract value out of the brand. And this is not to, you know, point fingers and say private equity is the bad guy because there are people who want to do that. Um, and, and to those people, I say, well, look at Inspire and all the good they've done for those brands. I mean, yes, they've changed those brands in some fundamental ways. One that comes to mind is Jimmy John's not using in-house delivery, you know, or, or going to third-party delivery. Like there have been some ways those brands have changed kind of from their fundamental core, but on the whole, I mean, we, we don't see the, Inspire is not tanking those brands just to rip value out of them at the greedy corporate, whatever, you know? So I think that there, there are some who will see the Subway, you know, Rourke doing that to Subway. And I, I, I will choose to think better of work than that. However, private equity, that is the goal. I mean, it, the goal is to to turn the brand around, to make value out of it, right? I mean, at the end of the day, that's they want to make money on this thing. And there's a lot that has to be done to Subway to do that. And I think a very interesting implication here is the 10,000 franchisees in the Subway system. Um, you can't just simply say, okay, Subway does this now uh, because it is 20,000 locations with 10,000, 10, I might be wrong on that number, but I think it's around there, um, franchisees. There, it's, it is the proverbial turning the cruise ship around with a crowd of 10,000 people who are judging your every move and whose livelihood really depends on it. And so those are the things I'll be watching to see um, to, to, to see, you know, what Rourke decides to do, what value they can bring to Subway, um, how they might change it to reverse course from its, you know, where it is, is now. And, and at the end of the day, you know, try to make this, uh, the buzzworthy brand with some momentum they used to be. Yeah. I well, think I, one, th go ahead, Holly. I'm sorry. No, you go ahead, Alicia. You have more <laughs> well, I, I, to I say. Think I think one thing we have to acknowledge here is uh, when we talk about what's the differentiation going to be with all these sandwiches under work. And, and I think that comes down to Subway's international portfolio. Um, they are bullish on that. You know, they have a huge international presence in a way that, you know, Jimmy John's, Schlatsky's, they, they certainly don't. And I know when this 
when this rumor started swirling earlier this year, like eight months ago or whatever, um, you know, Chidsey had an exclusive interview with the Wall Street Journal and, and noted that the goal is to add thousands of restaurants outside of the U.S. That gives me reason to believe another maybe reason to believe that, that they might uh, operate autonomously because, uh, you know, I, I mean, that is a that's a whole nother complex business on its own is when you're targeting international, perhaps more than domestic, because they're pretty saturated here. Um, you know, that that adds a whole new layer of, of complexity to to this deal that inspired and, and focus. They, they don't have that that um, that sort of international footprint as big as what we're talking about here with Subway. Do you think that that's going to make the other brands move towards international development to follow in Subway's footsteps? I think every brand is that's big <laughs> is considering international. I mean, we're saturated here. We know that the restaurant industry is saturated. The, you know, the the share of stomach is is one of the hard decisions to 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 make. It, we see this in our inbox every day. Every company's getting aggressive again on 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 growth, and so it's going to become even more saturated and. Um, you know, that's why we're starting to see, especially these bigger and public companies, um, you know, start to get way more bullish on the international piece. And so, excuse me while I got my computer charger set up. Um, we're just going so long today, guys. I need to charge my computer. Um, it's been so a wild 10 minutes, <laughs> let me tell you. Uh, 14 minutes and 47 seconds to be Sorry. precise. <laughs> okay, so... Um, we're, I mean, to go on Subway a little bit more, I bring up Jimmy John's because Jimmy John's is kind of the next big thing in, in sandwiches. We have Jimmy John's and Jersey Mike's that are both kind of competing for this second spot. And I think to see two of them under one umbrella, we'll call it, versus together, I think that's going to be interesting to watch and see if Jimmy John's begins to expand as quickly as Subway has, if that's going to help them, and if they're maybe going to move international. I just think there's a lot of questions with the two of them and how they're going to complement each other or how they're going to differentiate each other under the work umbrella i think i'm I'm actually more interested to watch jersey mics just because they're, they're sort of the last true independent one right because even firehouse subs is under the restaurant brands portfolio um and so jersey but and, and jersey mics of all the major chains opened the most locations last year of all major restaurant chains period maybe crumble opened more but jersey Mike jersey mics is 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 really the one to watch as far as I think they would be the the next great competitor to both Jimmy John's and Subway certainly. And honestly, I put them in a little bit of a different category than than um, Jimmy John's and Subway. Jimmy John's and Subway to me both occupy kind of the value sandwich play. Jersey Mike's is a little bit more on the quality side of things. Um, of course, when Subway added their meat slicers, it was Jersey Mike's they were thinking about when they did that because. That's, you know, kind of one of their um, core uh, ideals. So, um, you know, none of this really means anything to them. Of course, they all compete. At the end of the day, it's how do they create a great brand experience? How do they maximize the potential of the brand? And I think Jersey Mike's offering will continue to be, hey, look, we're, we are this independent company that is focused on quality and we, are, we have the momentum. And then Jimmy John's and Subway will continue to be, we are much more convenient and, and value oriented and you can punch these things into a lot more markets. And I, I think to Alicia and Holly's point, I think international could prove to be the play, especially for Jimmy John, which doesn't have as much of a, I don't even know what their global presence is like if they have much of one at all. 
Well, you know, talking more about how we can expand restaurants is this modular units that Alicia brought up this week as she was thinking out loud. Um, and as she often does and then writes about it and it's wonderful. Um, so modular units are a way that new brands are really growing fast. I mean, it's not, there's nothing new. We've seen it for almost 10 years. I think Alicia, you said 2015 was the first Taco Bell unit around there. Um, so we, this isn't new. It's something that people have been doing, but we see chains like small sliders really coming up with these brands that are literally dump and begin. Like I think small. It's a really <laughs> unappealing way to put it, but <laughs> jeez. Like I think that Alicia, you were talking about small sliders. It takes thirty minutes for the shipping container to get off of the truck and into the restaurant space, and that's something that is really valuable in a time when we're seeing all of these delays in construction that people have been talking about for the past two years. Like there's construction delays, there's construction delays. We're having a hard time growing, and I mean that's one way that people are growing at least domestically. I'm not sure what the international presence for these kind of brands is, but um, it's nothing new, but it's becoming this huge trend. Um, so, I mean, Alicia, I guess I'll start with you. What do you think about these yeah. containers and how they're shaping the new restaurant's future? Well, you know, we we here tend to follow three data points makes a trend, and we've had more way, way more than three data points on this sort of modular conversation this year. Um, and, it, you know, it, it sort of started with, I had an initial conversation shortly after Maria Rivera was appointed CEO of Smalls Sliders. And that is a company that is growing really fast. Um, you know, it's a slider concept uh, that was initially based out of Louisiana, since moved to Atlanta to scale um, more quickly. And they are all in on this modular shipping container, um, you know, prototype. And that is one of the reasons that they are able to be as aggressive as they are on their on their growth. And when I had that initial conversation, I've since had many, but when I had that initial conversation um, with Maria, she she point blank said, you know, modular, I believe, is the future of the industry. Okay, Um, so that plants a seed somewhere and then you start to see little anecdotes everywhere. And you're like, maybe she was right. I don't know. But, you know. Since that January conversation, you know, I've gotten press releases about Domino's franchisees opening these models, um, you know, this uh, this concept called Sticky Bird, um, you know, this new concept called uh, um, Blenders, you know, we're just starting to see it all over the place. And then you go to these events, like I was at the Texas Restaurant Association show in um, July in Houston, and there was a, a modular um exhibitor there. So I just casually asked them what kind of demand they're seeing. And, you know, it turned into an hour long conversation. Here's what we're seeing. This is not any, like anything we've been seeing in the history of our company. The demand is definitely there. So that's sort of the underlying foundation of this conversation. Yes, we are seeing this. It probably is definitely a trend. I always get nervous to identify trends, right? But we, we are seeing this. The question then becomes why? And there are so many answers to that, that, you know, uh, from every operator that I talked to for a story I published earlier this week, it's speed to market. It's the ability to go into a market and, you know, sort of maybe test it with significantly less risk. Um, It's super cost efficient. Um, I believe that the Blender's um, vice president of development, for example, told me their labor line is about 5% lower with these prototypes and their utilities are up to 40% lower 
um, you know, with these prototypes. I mean, holy cow, you know, when you're talking about a persistently, you know, relentless challenged environment, no wonder this is a trend. I mean, I don't, I don't think I am crazy. I don't think I'm making this up. This is going to be attractive. The, the other piece that, that is a little maybe below the headline here is that the real estate, you know, needed for these modular restaurants is way more plentiful. And, you know, as we talked about earlier with, with you know, a, a number of concepts, big and small, being more aggressive on their growth because we're probably almost fully out of those, you know, abnormalities of the past couple of years, um, real estate is really hard to come by. And especially drive-through real estate. And drive-through real estate is what people are looking for now. And these modular restaurants can provide that, but they can provide it on, you know, on a parcel that is not a traditional, you know, brick and mortar parcel. I mean, the blenders um, person was telling me that, you know, they are opening in like the corner of a parking lot of a big box real, you know, retailer like like Home Depot. Home Depot is still paying rent. They're not using that space, and this can fit in that space. Um, I don't, I don't know what the downside is here, other than maybe consumers being a little. Um, maybe having some trepidation about ordering food out of a, a you know, shipping container unit. But I can tell you that this is not new. This model is not new. And in the 10 years or so since, you know, companies have been experimenting with them, they are evolving. And some of these don't look, you wouldn't be able to tell. Um, so I, I think it's appealing across the board for operators trying to save costs. I think it's appealing for landlords trying to, you know, maybe tap into that that rent in, in space that is unused. And I I want to add, because I'd be remiss not to, permitting and construction delays are still very much a huge thing. And I've been going through the most recent earnings transcripts for the past two weeks. And this is still a huge, huge narrative. This challenge has not gone away as much as we think things are normalizing. That's one thing that hasn't fully normalized yet. And so when you think about that, this becomes another attractive factor. Yeah, I mean, Alicia, you could probably uh, vouch for this as well in Louisville. But here in Columbus, I cannot tell you how many freaking parking lots there are everywhere. I mean, it's just a sea of concrete. And do you want to know how many of those parking spots are taken? Very, very few, right? I mean, a lot of the shopping centers, it's just so much open concrete space because once upon a time, especially in the suburbs, that was what you did. You plopped a shopping mall, a development somewhere, and you surrounded it with thousands of parking spaces. And, you know, probably once upon a time they were full and every so often they fill up, you know, now too. But by and large, you've just got so much space. And that's where this trend really, really, uh, I think it stands to take off and become very much the next big thing, as Alicia is saying, because yeah, there's just a lot of open space. These out parcels where you can pop a you know, shipping container or two or three, and suddenly you're driving traffic there again, whereas the mall is not doing that. I mean, there is some indication that malls are coming back, but by and large, you become an appealing area again because you've got more restaurants, you've got more things to that are, are drawing you there. And yeah, to Alicia's point, it's it's the easiest thing in the world, not the easiest thing in the world, but certainly way easier than building up from the ground is constructing somewhere else and trucking it in, which is exactly what Smalls is doing. And using them as a as a um, example, as Alicia has done, 
because I also had a chance to speak with Maria Rivera a few weeks ago for takeaway. You know, they've got three different plants around the country ready to construct these things, which means that, you know, if they go west, they've got a plant ready to supply them there. In the east, they've got one there, Midwest. And yeah, you, you'd ship it in and it's a half hour before it's down on the lot and they're about, you know, ready to operate this thing. Um, it's just, it's, it is efficiency, which is, of course, we've been harping on all year. It is a very efficient way to construct. Now, if I were to step back a little bit, though, and just say, in general, smaller prototypes, more flexible prototypes, which is what, you know, shipping containers and modular is all about, but is, you know, a little bit more broad. I, I look at these coffee chains like Dutch Bros, Scooters, you know, these kinds of chains, this is what they're doing too. In some cases, I think maybe some of them are doing shipping containers, but in other cases, they're just taking advantage of all this parking lot space, opening a five, six, 700 square foot area, ideal for drive-through, no dining room, and, you know, very quick, very efficient, so much so that the jack-in-the-boxes of the world are also looking at doing this because smaller footprint and you're driving a lot of your off-premises business out of it, so you're maximizing the, the square footage. It, it just makes too much sense. Um, and I think that, yes, the modular shipping container piece of this, um, I, I think is is a very attractive one purely because of the sort of build out opportunities there. The one thing I do not know, somebody at Shipping Container Today is going to have to tell me, is how many of these things are there in the world? Because, I mean, at some point we could run out of shipping containers, right? I mean, they're not just, we need to use them to ship stuff, right? I just... My, my potential downside. I think you can build them. I think you can manufacture them pretty quickly. No, I would guess so. Well, then it asks that begs the question: the materials or those? Anyway, that's yes, thinking a little bit more long term. But like, <laughs> you know, because once negative. upon a time, Alicia, you would remember <laughs> this when this this trend initially kind of came up over a decade ago. I think you and I uh, were were following this um, this trend back when we were with different publications and there was a real sustainability story to it, right? Because it was like, Oh, look at all these unused shipping containers sitting around. Let's turn it into a restaurant. That's not the message as much anymore. Message more is now around, Oh, look how efficient we can build this thing out. But I, I wonder, you know, about the sustainability piece of it and whether that will come back around to become a part of that story. But if you're talking about up to 40% savings on utilities, because you're using your, your output, um, is significantly less than yeah. perhaps that cancels that equation out. Good point. I wonder about, is there going to be an eyesore risk? Cause you know, if everybody gets aggressive with this, are we going to have five restaurants in the home Depot parking lot? <laughs> I, I don't know. Yeah. That's true. <laughs> We're getting too negative for my comfort. No, no, no. That's good. Because then people go get like dragged along to Home Depot and then it's like, great, you go get what you need at Home Depot and I'll be at the cider restaurant. Yeah. It's better yeah. than the hot dog cart at my Home Depot. So. Well, and that, I think that presents an interesting, I don't know, interesting piece of this conversation. Certainly this is low risk. It's similar to me to food trucks, right? You talk about the hot dog cart. We have, we have Chick-fil-A's little blue menu up here in the parking lot of the mall. Um, you know, and it does, I've been up there twice and it's been really busy both times and they're using that unused parking lot space. So is this very dissimilar from a, from a food truck? I, I don't, I don't see much of a difference. I mean, the food truck doesn't can go, have wheels. Oh, oh really? <laughs> is that what it is? I love how much you are. You're such a leader. I learned so much from you. It's just, just such an honor and privilege to work for you. 
a dad jokes is my new lane, Alicia. So just buckle in. I, I do think that's part of, you know, obviously when we talk about non-traditional, this is a huge part of that. We talk about ghost kitchens too. I think that is way more different than the similarities between a food truck and a modular unit, because obviously I think that physical presence is huge, especially as crowded as the third party delivery marketplaces have gotten. You might drive by a sliders and be like, cool, you know, and, and, and have to go into the fourth page on a, an aggregate to see it. So I think that is more advantageous than what we're seeing on, on the ghost kitchen side, but the food truck the food truck versus the modular, I think, is really interesting. They both have their benefits. Food trucks are kind of, I think, they're pain a pain in the ass to get permitting from you know municipality to municipality. Um, maybe this circumvents that. I don't know, but I think it's an intriguing conversation. I certainly, especially with the Domino's conversation, it was franchisees really kind of being aggressive with this. And in a statement, their VP of development basically said. We are looking forward to doing more of this. Well, think about their fortressing strategy, right? Yes. Domino's is all yep. about that fortressing. Well, you're going to need some parking lots if you're going to really yes. do that fortressing approach to it. And yeah, I mean, going back to the food truck thing, food truck can't have a drive through, right? I mean, that's that's right. the true genius here because, you know, we don't even need to get to the sort of story of Reef because like that's a whole other <laughs> podcast some other day. But the idea was a sound one, which was, oh, parking lots are valuable and we will have these pods on parking lots and we will create revenue out of, you know, nothing. Um, but, you know, there were the whole pesky factors of food safety and marketing. So, you know, but when you have a small sliders, which is traditional restaurant in their signage, their marketing, traditional restaurant in that they have a drive through, the difference is just, they just don't have a dining room and they're, you know, very small, right? So, so I think that is the difference of this movement to some of those sort of ghost kitchen elements. Um, and, and, and where again, a Domino's could really thrive with this is you could have a shipping container Domino's in a, a, a parking lot and a big old Domino's logo above it. And the whole community will be like, oh, okay, there's a Domino's over there. And that's where I will now go pick up my pizza. Yeah. I will Especially say with the evolution topic. of the prototype. Yeah, mm -hmm. I will say off topic, um, but on the topic a little bit, there is a new drive through opening up in my parents' neighborhood of a Chick-fil-A. First Chick-fil-A in the entire county. But it's going to be a drive through which is very odd because... I don't think they're going to be able to get permits for that. Well, and you won't go through it, so we'll never know how good it is. I may. <laughs> I may go through it in a car. I may. But, um, you know, we... I mean, Chick-fil-A Chick is making its case, right? Like, they're going to be everywhere in any community yeah. that was not, you know, uh, on board with Chick-fil-A is going to look at the, you know, New York, where Chick-fil-A is still, as you guys know, killing it, um, and realize, okay... You know, we'll we'll give you whatever you need to open up here because we want a Chick Fil A in our community because you're going to make gobs and gobs and gobs of money, <laughs> gobs yeah. of money, gobs of it. Scrooge McDuck style. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so let's talk about catering. Alicia, you prolific writer this week. You wrote about catering as well. I don't know how you fit it into your day, um, but the, catering has been up. A lot of companies are talking about increasing their catering strategy. That they're seeing a lot of revenue come out of it and you know we, we for a while we thought catering might be dead but it has really created a big resurgence because of first of all companies wanting to lure their workers in by offering them free food our office does this and i will say it works um and 
there's also the idea that people are having more parties, like the In-N-Out truck goes to parties. The Chick-fil-A has a food truck too that they're doing catering for. So I find it really interesting that catering is up for parties as well than it than it is just for offices. I mean, Sweet Room was talking about how their catering has increased like 120% year over year. Um, so what do you guys think? Yep. Anyone? <laughs> I, I, I think Alicia saw me make a face when Holly said our company does catering and it works to lure people <laughs> in because we had a catered lunch in the office yesterday and Holly was not there. Um, so she says one thing, she means another. Um, I will say I love having catered lunches in the office and I think it's great for restaurants too. So our office uses some sort of third party catering platform called Club Feast that partners with local restaurants. We can all go in ahead of time and pick out what we want and then it gets catered to the office. And I love it because I don't think we've had a catered lunch from a restaurant that I had heard of or been to before. Um, so at least the ones that we're getting in our office are like one or two unit <clears throat> local New York City restaurants. And that's awesome. I'm more than happy to, you know, support them by eating the free food that, you know, my company pays for. <laughs> <laughs> um, but then it's great. I now I know more restaurants. You know, this place we had yeah. lunch from yesterday is a single unit Mediterranean restaurant um, that now I know about. And so, you know, I from a consumer perspective, it seems like a win. I'm not surprised to see it. As Holly said, like people got to go to the well, you know, companies think that people got to go to the office, and so they lure them in with catered lunches. I'm not surprised to see it up for things like parties either, because people have discovered that it's easier than, you know, cooking a whole meal yourself for 20 some odd people. And people want to spend more time just socializing and being with their people instead of putting in the work to cook them a meal or whatever the case may be. So yeah, I'm, I'm really into the catering trend personally. I think it's, I think, I think to be, to be clear, catering star was rising before the pandemic. I mean, I, I recall doing several stories about the, just the material increase in catering and everybody was all in on it because operators started to realize that catering is, you know, large orders, <laughs> more profitable than other off-premises, uh, you know, businesses. You know, I think the average value, uh, it, you know, you, that's a that's a good uh, fish in the bucket kind of audience um, to cater to. <laughs> Let's talk about dad jokes, Sam. Um, so before the pandemic, its star was rising, and it was it was fun to write about, and all these companies got on board to help facilitate you know this this added channel. And then obviously it went to you know you know where during the pandemic because events went away and office workers went away, and now what intrigues me is just you know, public companies have been talking about the comeback of catering since about the middle of last year. This round of earnings calls, however, stuck uh, stuck out to me um, way more clearly because the numbers were astounding. We're talking about double-digit growth um, in the first half of 2023 compared to last year. You know, you think about Cracker Barrels expecting their catering business alone to generate $100 million in revenue this year. And then you talk about companies that are starting to sort of, maybe they've dipped their toes in already, but they're starting to take it more seriously. So Noodles and Company has hired a consultant 
um, you know, to come up with a dedicated menu for catering. That's how serious they're taking it. Kava is going to start testing it uh, in Q3. So obviously, um, you know, this is becoming, this is grabbing the attention for a reason. And again, it's a more affordable um, off-premises, you know, um, channel than when we talk about delivery. And those orders are big and they're profitable. What is the impetus behind this comeback? Isn't just people returning to the office uh, or people just being social. Um, Labor is there. And more than it was last year. The conversation around labor has changed dramatically since, you know, where are we now? Middle of Q3 last year. Um, and we're, we're, we're inching and clawing back toward those pre-pandemic numbers. If we have the labor, we can better facilitate. Uh, it's, it's easier to try to execute, you know, a catering, um, a catering channel. So I think that, I think that is the impetus behind it. And I, I think it's really kind of cool to see how all these companies are really starting to lean in more. I mean, I've, I've seen you know, Chick-fil-A is a good example. They've been promoting their catering business on their homepage for several months now. They're promoting catering really hard. You know, even Wawa is, is, is starting to push harder on their catering, their catering business. So I think early days again, in this comeback story, if you will, not to be trite with that, um, you know, that sort of language, but I think catering is going to surpass where it was in, in pre, you know, pre pandemic times, um, especially when labor gets fully back into place because people realize that it's, it's super sexy. There's a lot to like about it on paper. Yeah, and just to piggyback off of kind of what you're saying, Alicia, around the sort of off-premises element of it, <clears throat> I mean, the, the the term of the last three years or so, one of the top five terms to emerge in the last three years has been omni-channel, right? And so with restaurants becoming much more adept at not just one or two service styles, but four, five, six, seven service styles, catering makes a lot of sense as one of them. And I think of something like a Chipotle, with its second make line and a lot of other companies going that direction too, you know, you're, you're setting up a, a whole second make line or, you know, part of your kitchen where you're preparing your delivery orders. Uh, why not prepare your catering orders too? I just think restaurants are a lot more equipped today than they were pre pandemic to handle this new channel that is catering. And then you just think about the technology, right? I mean, you have a lot of third-party purveyors coming up that are going to help you with your catering. And so you add the technology piece of it. It, it just makes too much sense um, to to do catering that you really can't pass that up because your, your team is ready to go. Your team already knows how to handle multiple channels, uh, uh, multiple service channels, multiple revenue streams. Why not make catering one of them and, you know, open yourself up to a whole new potential demographic like these parties and offices that we were talking about? I think a lot of independents are seeing the real benefit of having a catering service. I mean, Sam and I have a friend who owns two units and like the the catering is giant there. Like that helps them support every single thing that they're doing because they get all these catering clients and they've partnered with a third party service to be one of the catering options for a lot of offices around the city. And I think independents are really capitalizing on this to help them get by and then to help them expand, which is what all independents want. So they, but they're growing the scale with them. They're scaling as they move. So I think that's been really beneficial to these smaller brands. Yeah. I think one thing we don't talk about enough with catering uh, when it comes to benefits is it's, it's marketing applicability. 
And, you know, Holly and Leanne, you guys both hit it on the head. I mean, this is, you're getting the brand in front of dozens, potentially hundreds of, uh, you know, potential customers who may never, never have heard of you before and planting seeds all over the place. And, you know, that is, that has tremendous marketing applicability. That's going to incite word of mouth um, and, and so on and so forth. So I think that is a really significant potential for return on investment as well. All right. Well, I think we have captured a lovely conversation for everyone to enjoy wherever they want uh, through their ears. Uh, so, <laughs> so I'm going to podcasting. It. It's like the catering of conversations. <laughs> Omni-channel through your ears. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm going to turn it over to Joanna Fantosi, who interviewed Jody Boyce, the CMO of Teriyaki Madness. And then I'm going to thank you guys for joining me. Thanks, Holly. Get all your pork items for your operation with Smithfield Culinary. Choose from Smithfield's smoke and fast products and add barbecue to your menu without adding a pitmaster to your payroll. Or browse our margarita offerings, encompassing everything from pepperoni and pizza toppings to a variety of authentic specialty Italian meats. Finally, serve what you love with Smithfield, including everything from bacon to deli meats and much more. For the products and solutions to keep running strong, visit smithfieldculinary.com. Thanks, Holly. Thanks. I guess just to uh, to start things off uh, pretty broadly, uh, could you get us caught up with how the first half of 2023 has been for uh, for Teriyaki Madness? I think that the last time uh, when I actually spoke to Michael about a year ago, you you guys had just started investing in non traditional locations like uh, like boot trucks. Yeah, um, it has been a crazy start to the year. I feel like actually the pace picked up like maybe four or five years ago and never stopped. So um, yeah, it's been great. We are up uh, 21% um, same store sales year over year. So our our sales and our AUVs have been ramping up. Um, and even when traffic was kind of dropping for the whole industry, we never dropped as much. Um, and so our traffic and our sales have been going up together um, and they're back on the, on the rise. Um, whereas traffic for a little bit was taking a dip. Um, but pretty much since May, we seem to have recovered from that um, and are going back up. And we've been opening a bunch of shops and selling more to new uh, franchisees. So it's been a very busy first half of the year. And what do you think is driving the company's growth, both financial and geographic? Um, it's probably a lot of things. I mean, for one, I feel like we've proven our business model over the last several years. Um, we've proven that we're pandemic proof um, and recession resistant, even though I don't think we're officially in a re recession, but we know uh, from the 2008 recession that, that we are um, and we are positioned that way. So um, that's one piece of it is, is having a lot of successful franchisees. Um, and then the, brand awareness when when that starts to get out um in conjunction with the success of our of our shops um you know more people want to jump on board so that's that's a big piece of it the other big piece is internal expansion um you know getting through covid and getting through a lot of the craziness with supply chain and um and you know the the struggle with hiring now that we've kind of get gotten past that our um, existing shop owners are really starting to expand quickly. 
Yeah, that makes sense. And uh, something that I think that you mentioned that just uh, struck me was, I guess, besides just obviously opening a lot more stores, um, how are you kind of improving brand recognition and loyalty and on on your way, I guess, or probably most of the way there to becoming really a household name? That's exciting. I like to hear that. Um, <laughs> uh, we've had our loyalty program since 2018. Um, and we were pretty thankful we did because at the time, I mean, going way back, brands were kind of on the fence back then if they needed an app or loyalty, it was more just online ordering. And so we chose to get, get in with both, um, loyalty online and an app. And so it set us up for success during COVID. And so we didn't have to pivot much during COVID. We just kind of had to crank up the volume. Um, we turned on some technology we weren't even using before like curbside. Um, we just had no use for it previously. Um, and now that has taken us kind of to the next phase of our technology and our, um, excuse me, and our app. Um, you know, the biggest piece from COVID is consumers getting used to technology. There, there were so many people who had to use it for the first time and they never had to order delivery in the past or they never had to use an app in the past. And um, people were forced to do that. So there was a, a huge rise in um, just the the usage of apps out there. And so because we were already set up, we were able to take it kind of to the next level. And so that actually is where we're going. We're, we're keeping the, um, the convenience factor. That's not going away. And actually the demand for convenience is, is only um, increased because of COVID. Mm -hmm. um, and so we're keeping that but we are trying to improve the whole experience. And that's where we're working with Flyby um, because basically we're tracking customers as they order, uh, not only curbside, it's pickup orders, curbside, and even our delivery partners. Um, we're tracking them through GPS. Uh, and so we know exactly when they're arriving and our goal is to be faster than a drive-through, um, is to literally be standing on the curb with their food as they pull up um, you know, they don't even have to park, they get their food and they're on their way. Um, and so with the industry, you know, going a lot of places going towards drive throughs um, this is our solution to a drive through mm -hmm. um, You read my mind because I was about to ask all the things you just answered. <laughs> um, Sorry, I got ahead. <laughs> I just want to, just, just for our listeners, could you kind of explain what your off-premises setup is right now and maybe why you thought that drive-through wasn't necessarily a good fit for Teriyaki Madness? Sure. So um, we are set up pretty much to get food in people's mouths in as many ways as we can. So you can order online uh, for pickup. You can order for delivery. Um, and then you can also order for curbside. Um or you can order from third-party delivery companies like DoorDash and Uber Eats and um, Grubhub. Those are all integrated with our app as well. So even though you're ordering from a third party, it still goes directly through um, our app and into our shops. So it's seamless. It's literally as if the person's standing there in front of you. Um, in those cases, in the cases where people order directly from us, that's where we're tracking, um, tracking them so that we can just get them the best experience possible and get the food in their hands. Um, the reason we aren't going towards drive-throughs, um, you know, drive-throughs are great. We make all of our food fresh to order um, and we're pretty customized. So we allow um, customers to, you know, say no onions or I want the sauce on the side. And so 
because we make the food to order, it's all fresh, you know, we're not scooping from a pan. Um, it just doesn't lend well to a drive-through, but it lends very well to an app where it tells the customer exactly what time to come pick it up. And on top of that, with the technology of tracking them, it allows us to, to meet them out front. So theoretically, it's actually faster than a drive-through um, as far as you know, time in your car and the pickup process. Mm -hmm. And is the integration with flyby uh, technology in all locations right now? Not yet. So we've been piloting it all summer um, at eight of our locations. And in about a month, we're launching it at 10 more. And then pretty much through um, the rest of the year is when that integration will be rolled out to the rest, rest of the shops. We just want to make sure it's done right. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm curious, how has the pilot been going and how do you think it's helped you guys achieve your goal to be kind of, to be faster than a drive-through? Um, it's great. So we did um, two big tests. So we've been running it for about 14 weeks, but in those 14 weeks, we did two tests. One, we did a 30% off curbside and the other one, we did 50% off curbside. And the reason we did that is to Honestly, we wanted to try and break the system to see what we need to fix to, you know, make sure that our operations are running smoothly. Um, but what we found was even the 50% off day, uh, it went really, really well. And we went from, um, you know, just surprising people, the whole surprise and delight. We had people um, pulling up and us being out there and we know what car um, they're driving because it tells us in the app what color make and model of their car tells us their name. So I was able to walk up to someone and say, you know, hey, Bob, I've got your order here for you. And the response from people was fantastic. And there were there were people that were like, oh my God, how'd you know I arrived? You know, it's, it's a little creepy um, in a sense, but uh, it was great. We had people who had a dog in the car or a kid in the car um, and they were really appreciative. So it's going really well. There's definitely um, a shift in the way that we do our labor. Um, you know, we want to make sure that we have that person up front um, so that we can be out there. So we're working on um, just fine tuning our labor matrix to make sure we have the right people. Yeah, that's really the thing with with a lot of this new restaurant technology is that something that I hear is that you're not necessarily replacing humans, but you're just kind of shifting people around and maybe people have different tasks now. So uh, how has that kind of been and are people are, are your people kind of doing different things now to to keep up with the technology? Yeah, well, one of the things that was lost during COVID was the dining room. And so, you know, half of our system has opened since 2020. Um and so we've had a lot of shops who've never had to give this dining room experience. And so we're kind of going back and saying, okay, we are beyond the excuses of uh, the pandemic. I know labor is a challenge. Um, that will never go away. Labor is always a challenge. So we are doing a shift of labor. Um, in some cases, in busy shops, they do need to add another front of house person. But this technology with Flyby has turned into a much bigger project. So instead of us just running the food out, it's what else can that person be doing up front? Um, we call them table touches where they go and, you know, greet the guests and say, how was your food? And can I get you anything else? And um, we're trying to be fast, casual in the front of house, but more QSR and back of house. So we want to be as quickly, um, quick as possible and as seamless as possible in back of house. And we want to give that really good front of house customer service and experience and so that person, you know, managing the technology for flyby 
basically has like 10 other, you know, tasks that they need to do that we used to do, but we're bringing them back. Yeah, that's great. And I'm curious, has the technology improved out the door times? It has. So according to Flyby, um, under three minutes is like a good industry standard. Um, we are hitting under two minutes. Our goal is 30 seconds. <laughs> so, um, you know, that's an average for the whole day. So during the really busy lunch and, and busy uh, dinner, that's also mixing that those times in with um, slower afternoon times. Uh, so our goal is, is 30 seconds, uh, but we're already hitting under uh, two minutes, which is better than, than the standard. Mm -hmm. um, and in kind of writing a lot about restaurant tech, I feel like the most important aspects of online ordering technology is speed, which Flyby definitely seems to help, and ease of service. So will you be implementing maybe other technology solutions to help your goals even further? We are. So, you know, the time that we give the customer uh, to pick up their food is is only as good as the time, you know, the accurate times for back of house and making the food. So at the same time, our entire operations team is working on throughput, working on, you know, even though we make the food fresh and made to order and customized, how do we get that out faster? And so we are looking at other technology and back of house um, to help the speed of service, because if the customer shows up on time, the food's not ready, doesn't work. So um, we need both pieces to work together um, to make this program the way we want it. Yeah, absolutely. And then there's, of course, the challenge of once you start doing that, getting the front and back of house technology to talk to each other. <laughs> exactly. And we do have those uh, open windows where they can yell at each other and um, well, there you go. Old yeah, that part's great. <laughs> that part's great. But even through um, Olo, so we use Olo for our menu platform and Olo has um, an Olo Expo tablet essentially at the counter. That's how Flyby is coming in um, to our cashier. But what's also great is that a lot through Olo Expo, they can push orders to the kitchen faster um, than it would normally, you know, push to the kitchen. So it, it pushes at, at a certain amount of time before the orders do. Well, if they're busy and they can see through flyby that a customer is already en route and maybe the customer's early, they can manually push that order to the kitchen and kind of bump it up um, because the person's on their way. Okay. I think it's sort of important to, uh, to not automate everything, me personally, yeah. just because you want to have that manual switch to in case something goes wrong or just to be able to override something uh, to have yeah. that human element. For sure. And the human element is important. Like we've We've talked a lot about kiosks. Like, do we go to kiosk? Do we not? Um, we are going to test a kiosk in a couple very specific locations um, in Santa Clara, where they're a lot more, you know, high tech um, oriented. But it is not a replacement for a cashier. And so that's, I think, the biggest difference is that there were a lot of brands looking at it as, you know, oh, I could replace labor, um, but it's not. We need that human aspect. Um, people want, especially new people to Taraki Madness, we like to explain the menu and tell a little bit about it. Um, so even when we do test kiosks, it's it's not to replace a cashier. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, and when you are figuring out what's best for, for the brand in terms of technology, how do you balance tech needs and technology needs and solutions with making sure that you're not overcomplicating things for your employees or for operations? That's a good question. So um, something we kind of put a stake in the ground years ago is we we basically said any new technology that we're going to bring in 
has to be integrated with the systems that we already have in place. Um, and that's actually why it took us so long to work with Flyby. Um, we've been talking to them for a couple of years, but at the time they weren't integrated with Olo and it would have required another tablet. So we would have had the Olo tablet plus the Flyby tablet. It's just too much for, for a front of house person to manage. Um, and so they integrated with Olo. And so we use Olo Expo already in our shops. And so it's not something brand new um, for an employee to learn um, or manage. You know, they can look at one screen and it's it's kind of all right there. So being integrated is key. Um, we do require any new um, any new partner that we go with to be integrated. Um, and we are using Hubworks, which is um, a product from Altimetrics. And part of that process is to make sure they're integrated with the accounting software um, and QuickBooks and then Revel, which is our POS system. Um, so that the whole thing just helps not only with uh, managing your labor and scheduling, um, but it also helps with um, ordering the food and inventory and um, and accounting. So all of that is meant to help our franchisees be more profitable um, and more efficient. So um, yeah, I think that that pretty much sums it up. I mean, we when we were looking at Flyby even I think two years ago, um, the reason we pushed it off so much was because we said, we'd love to work with you. We're not willing to, to get yet another device at the counter. So once you're integrated with Olo and Punch, come talk to us. And so um, that's pretty much our standard for any new partner we go with. Okay, great. And then the only other thing I wanted to ask was, uh, what, uh, what are your goals, I guess, technology or otherwise for Teriyaki Menace? That's a good question. So uh, pre-COVID, we were ahead of the game. We had our app and online ordering. Um, we had integrations with third-party delivery companies. We were ahead of a lot of restaurant brands. And COVID pretty much forced a lot of brands to catch up very quickly to us. So uh, whereas we thought we were you know, two or three years ahead of other brands, all of a sudden it was a level playing field again. So our goal is to get ahead again um, and to continue to get ahead of other brands, um, be as profitable as we can for our franchisees, make it as easy as possible in the back of house um, while giving customers the best experience and more of a fast, casual front of house um, experience while they're dining. And so our goal is to look at new technologies um, that are going to allow us to get ahead again. Um, so GPS tracking or um, you know, eventually drone delivery, which we're already in talks with uh, some companies. So we're not afraid to look at, you know, what are the new new things coming out? Technology is a huge undertaking. Um, there's, you know, there's always kinks in the road while you're getting it set up for a long time. So being the, the first or one of the first to do it um, has its pros and cons. We're getting ahead, but at the same time, we're the ones doing all the legwork with these brands to um, work out the technology kinks. So that is our, our long-term goal is to make it as easy as possible to run a shop, as profitable as we can. Um, and we think technology is a big way that, that we're gonna get ahead and do that. 